been thinking a lot about change this week. A lot about change this week. You know, it happens tomorrow in our town. For me, this is a big deal. For many of you, some of you that have kids, this is a big deal. Every student that so wishes, that is, every, every student that their parents will allow, are going back to school five days a week, elementary, middle, and high school. This will be the first time that my two older sons have been around all of their friends in over a year. Isn't that something? That's big change. Big change. And they need it. They really need it. We need it. Big change. Uh, just just uh, this past week, I was able to go and visit Grace Woodard for the first time in over a year. Now, unfortunately, she couldn't get out of the bed and go to the area where they will allow visitors. But they are now allowing visitors at the Northampton Nursing Home where Grace Woodard is. They bring them into a particular area. But in over a year, I was able to talk with her through the window. We were able to have a conversation, me yelling, she doing her best, but we still were able to communicate. Uh, I'll share some more of that later when I get to the announcements. Uh, she said something really sweet, and I want to share that with everyone. But that's a big change. The first Wednesday of April, uh, Trudy and myself and some others, we are going to be going to Bayberry, inside of Bayberry, and doing a little, just a little worship service, some songs and a little devotional. It's the first time into Bayberry, able to do that since this pandemic started. And that's something. That's, that's a lot of change. We've got a lot of change on the horizon. I tend to think that on Sunday next week we're going to see even more people in here as people wait to maybe return until Easter. I just have been thinking a lot about change. So no surprise that when I hit this morning's passage as we step into the third sermon Peter preached, this is one of the first sermons in the book of Acts, it's all about change. This is the most profound of the sermons. It launches the largest change to happen in Christianity. And not just in Christianity, something happens inside of Peter. Change. That's kind of what I'm thinking about. I've been thinking about it. I want to think about it as we hit our passage this morning. We're in Acts chapter 10. And if you, would, if you turned to Acts chapter 10, you'd see there's a lot of front material. Before you ever get to Peter preaching this message, there's a lot going on before he ever begins to speak. And so I want to tell you that story before we get to the sermon. This is the moment where Peter will preach the first Christian sermon to a non-Jew and allow a non-Jew, what the Bible would call a Gentile, into the kingdom of God. Big change. Before we ever get to that point, you have Peter... Uh, Peter sitting in Joppa. And miles and miles away, there is a centurion, this Roman official named Cornelius. He's a God-fearing Gentile. He understands that there's this God of the Jews, but he's not allowed into the fellowship of the Jews. He's never been circumcised. He doesn't go to the temple. He is a non-Jew, but he knows of this God of Israel. He's called a God-fearing, a God-fearing Gentile. Cornelius has a vision. God comes to him and says, I want you to send some of your servants to Joppa, that place where Peter is currently staying. And you tell Peter to come with your servants and bring you a message. And so Cornelius does exactly what God tells him to do. And so off he goes. Then, as those servants are coming, 
Peter is having this vision. He's up praying as is his practice at the same time in the days on the roof, and he has a vision. And there's this this there's this thing dropping from the sky, and there are animals, and some of them they're not allowed to be eaten, some are allowed to be eaten. It's this very strange vision Peter's having. And in that moment, the angel in this vision says this. Take a look. I just want to put it up on the screen. He says this to Peter. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Really strange image. Hearkening back to images from the Old Testament. But there's something happening here. There's this stuff falling from the sky. There's animals that would be impure. But now God's saying that they are now clean. It's just this very strange image. Eventually the image wraps up. And as the image is wrapping up and Peter's coming out of his prayer, those servants from Caesarea, sent from Cornelius, they show up at the door and they begin to knock. And an angel, it's like having a really glorified doorbell. That angel says this to Peter, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs, and do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And so what does Peter do? He does exactly what the angel said. He gets up, he goes downstairs, and he goes with the servants. You have this sense that something is about to happen, something significant. And that's where we pick up. So Peter shows up in Caesarea. And they, there we're going to pick up with Acts chapter 10. We'll pick up with verse 24. So we'll put those on the screen. You can come along. But here it is. Verse 24. The following day he arrived at Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. And while talking with him, Peter went inside and he found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. For when I was sent for what for when I was sent for, I came without raising an objection. Why, I ask, have you sent me? And Cornelius then tells Peter exactly why he was sent for. He tells him about this vision that God had given him to go send his servants to meet Peter in Joppa and bring Peter back to Caesarea. So you have this sense, as Peter even acknowledges in this large crowd of Gentiles, if that wasn't enough, now he acknowledges that these people, you in front of me, as Peter would be saying, you who I would be calling impure, God has told me, I now call you clean. What an odd way to begin your introduction. So something is happening. And it's at that point then we step into the sermon. This is when Peter, at this moment, he will step into the sermon. So we pick up with the sermon. We're going to grab the first half this morning, uh, Easter Sunday. Next week we grab the second half of the sermon. First half of Peter's sermon here. Here's what it says, verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize. How true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears Him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. 
You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. That's where we'll stop this morning. Now, if you've been walking this journey with us, you'll notice some some common themes right here in the front half of the sermon. Peter is talking about Jesus as Lord of all. That's something we've seen in these past sermons where Jesus is acknowledged as King of the world, not Caesar, Jesus. He's reigning King. We also notice, and this is where Peter puts most of his emphasis here, we see right from the top, if you're just picking out words that matter, like that seem to be repeated, Immediately, I'm seeing geography matters. I see Judea, Galilee, Nazareth. I see Jerusalem. Four, four references to geography. And if that's not enough, he says the Jews and Israel. Peter here wants to make a very important point. Not only that Jesus is the one who came and lived on earth in the power of God in a human body, something he has emphasized over and over again, now he wants to make sure to nail that down in a geographic location. God, the God of Israel, sent Messiah to God's people in the promised land. This wouldn't have been anything odd for the Jews. They always thought that God was coming to save his people in the land of Palestine. It's that place where Judea and Galilee exist. He was coming back to reign again in Jerusalem. This was the geographic location where God and his people live forever and ever. And if you wanted to get, get in on the deal, well, then you needed to move to Jerusalem. You needed to at least move to the area around the holy city. That is where God would do his big work. So no surprise that when God sent his Messiah, he would come to a specific geographic location. Peter really wants to emphasize this Jesus was a Jew who lived in Palestine. But he doesn't want to land the plane just there. The whole reason Peter wants to make sure to acknowledge that this Messiah lived in Palestine is to make the point that now he launches from Palestine to the rest of the world. That's the point. Uh, this is a Jewish Messiah. But this Jewish Messiah was always about the business of bringing the world into the fold. So i just say it like this. It took me a paragraph to say what I probably should have said in a sentence. Good thing I wrote that sentence down. Here it is. God was not just concerned with saving his people inside the geographic boundaries of Palestine, God, through Jesus, had a plan to save people from every nation. So Peter's going to make this big point that Jesus, the Jew, is no longer just for the Jews. He's got a plan for the world. Now, that's really big. It's really big for us. So let me just zoom out and acknowledge how big this really is. We live in a world that is increasingly secular, particularly over the last 150 years. We have, we have grown with the idea, this idea that, that Christianity is really a, a form of power. Christianity is really just a Western religion used by Western powers to colonialize and oppress weak people around the world. That has been a growing idea for decades now. 
this idea that Christianity is exclusive. It puts a straitjacket on cultures and makes them do what they wouldn't normally do. You've, you've, I, I'm sure you're familiar with this idea that Christianity is an exclusive religion. If you want diversity, the last place you need to go is Christianity. Because Christianity is oppressive, exclusive. It's primarily Western. And it's been used by Western powers to do very bad things around the world. That's the predominant idea flowing through institutions of knowledge around our country and even the world. You go to any major secular university and you're going to eventually take on this idea that Christianity is an exclusive, oppressive religion. And yet here, we see Christianity breaking the bounds of its geographic origins. Christianity now being promoted, it is now going into a non-Jewish people. Big, this is big. You see, when Hinduism emerged in Southeast Asia, it did not expand across the globe. Do you know where Hinduism primarily sits geographically in our world today? In the Asia-Pacific region of the world. Exactly where it emerged. Buddhism emerges in Southeast Asia and has it seeped through the tunnels of YouTube and Facebook into homes around the world? Well, sure. But do you know where it primarily still sits? The Asia-Pacific region in Southeast Asia. That's predominantly where it currently sits. It has not expanded across the globe. Islam emerges in the Middle East. And yes, Islam has moved to different areas of the world, but you know where it predominantly still sits? In its land of origin, it still is predominantly made up of the Middle East. It is not a global religion. Do you know what happened with Christianity? It did the exact opposite. It exploded out of Palestine and it spread the world. There's this one scholar who's taken this on. He has an explanation because what in the world do we have happening with Christianity? I want you to want to read. It's a bit of a lengthy quote, but my, I hope that it bolsters your faith in the God who brought salvation through Jesus through the people of Israel. Take a look. Here it is. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, says this. The pattern of Christian expansion differs from that of every other world religion. For example, the center majority of Islam's population is still in the place of its origin. The Middle East, the Middle East. By contrast, Christianity was the first, was first dominated by Jews, and it centered in Jerusalem. Later, it was dominated by Hellenists and centered in the Mediterranean. Later, the faith was received bar by the barbarians in northern Europe, and Christianity became dominated by Western Europeans and then North Americans. Today, most Christians in the world live in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. Contrary to popular opinion, then, Christianity is not a Western religion that destroys local cultures. Rather, Christianity has taken more culturally diverse forms than other faiths. Now, I just want you to visualize this. This is going to be really important, so anyone that's listening to this later won't catch the image. Put a, I'm going to put a map up. This is from the Pew Research Center. Uh, so this is a secular organization that does research across the nation, uh, unbiased research. Take a look at the major religions across the world. The red is Christianity. Green is, uh, is Islam. You have Buddhism, and then you also have Hinduism. You can see here how the only religion that has exploded across the globe 
is Christianity. In a day where we're calling for diversity, 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 the most diverse religion you can get is Christianity. In this church, we support missionaries taking the gospel to very black-skinned people in Africa. Why Africa? Because we believe the gospel goes out beyond just America, but to the world. You know that we have people that we support that are working to bring life into an area of the world that is primarily Islamic. And they have very different looking skin and speak a very different language. Do you know that we are working with people that work with poor white people? And you know that we work with people who work with affluent, rich people. Do you know that we could bring onto this stage, week after week after week, people that look different and speak different languages because we have a common faith in Jesus. You want diversity, you get the family of God through Jesus. Now, you could march. I'm sure you could march and protest. And that can do some good in some context. But if you want to be part of a family where different languages and different skin color are coming together in true unity, you get Jesus. That's what you get. No other religion can claim the diversity that Christianity does. Now, why in the world am I not hearing this in the media? Why did no one tell me about this? It just doesn't fit the narrative often, does it? Christianity. It's the most inclusive thing you could get. That's right. So, that's big change. When Peter preaches to this non-Jew, it launches, it starts this movement to go global. And you can see where we are today. The gospel of Jesus has spread around the world. That's what's happened. So that's the kind of change that's happening globally. But there's also this change happening inside of Peter. You know, he starts the sermon in this interesting way. He says, now I realize. Now, if you and I knew nothing about Peter, we'd go, ah, he never knew anything about this. Like he finally, like God finally gave him some new information. He finally, finally came to. Thank you, God, for telling him something different. The problem is Peter always knew God had a vision for bringing in the nations. But for some reason, now was the moment he finally got it. You know, Peter knew Genesis 12.3. Genesis 12.3. We'll pull that up. Genesis 12.3. Here it is. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples. All peoples. God had a vision for all peoples on earth to be blessed through the offspring of Abraham. Peter knew that verse. He knew it. He knew this passage from Isaiah 42 when God said what His Messiah would one day do. Here's the vision for the Messiah who would one day come. A Messiah Peter would have been looking for and found. I will put my spirit on Him. Isaiah 42, 1-7. And He will bring justice to the nations. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. This is all part of the plan. Peter was there standing with Jesus in front of him when when Jesus gave his disciples the Great Commission. And inside of the Great Commission was a global commission. Here it is, Matthew 28, 18 through, we'll just take the first part of verse 20. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, obey everything I have commanded you. All nations. Literally, the word nations is ethnicities. You go to every kind of people. You go into the bush of Africa. You go into the cities of Europe. You go into the metropolitan areas of Asia. You go into the backwoods of Indonesia. You go into all the world. All the world. Peter knew that. He was there when Peter said it, when Jesus said it. He was there right before Jesus ascended to heaven and he told disciples this. Here's what Jesus says just before he ascends to heaven. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. If you put that on a map, you've got Jerusalem. Judea is the area around Jerusalem. Samaria is just above it where some non-Jews live. So he said you'll start here. You'll go here. You'll go here. And then you'll go everywhere. Peter was standing right in front of Jesus before he ascended to heaven when Jesus said, this is what you're going to do. And even Peter, even Peter, probably without even understanding what he was saying, said this in his first sermon after he told people who believed to be baptized. He said this, Acts 2, 2 verse 39, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. That's, that's code. All those far off is code for the Gentiles. Anyone who calls on the Lord can now be part of the family. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to go to temple. You don't have to eat kosher. You don't have to keep Sabbath. You come and you're part of the family. You do not have to carry the markings of the Jewish people anymore. You now come in by faith in Christ. Everyone comes by faith. That's a really diverse family. And yet, with all of that said, Peter had never taken knowledge, all that knowledge, and worked it into his heart. It had never made the jump. It had never gone from his head as information to his fingertips and his mouth and his body as action. He knew what God would call him to do. But he was stuck up in his head. Can you relate? Can you relate ever having it stuck in your head but never getting into your action? All right, summarize it this way. Here's what I think is going on. Peter knew God's plan, but he hadn't taken the step to do it yet. Something was changing in Peter because now he was doing something. That's where I think our application is. That's where I think our application is. I think that this same thing happens today where we carry a head full of knowledge, a lot of information, but we have a hard time getting it down into action. So I'm asking myself this question. This is the thing that's been stirring with me. It's been stirring with me for, a, for months now. Gonna, but now it just kind of gives me an opportunity to tell you my question. Here it is. This is the one I think we can roll out of this passage where we can find applications. This question. I'm asking it myself. I'm hoping that you would ask it yourself as well. What is God calling me to do that I'm procrastinating to do? Now, you may be procrastinating to do a lot of things. Okay? I'm not talking about the home project that you need to do. Unless God's calling you to do it, which maybe your spouse is saying, I'm hearing God very clearly say, you need to do that home project. 
What I'm talking about is that sense that God is moving you to do something. I believe that God calls people to take a step to Christian baptism. And sometimes people say, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it. I don't know. But sometimes that's where God is calling you. So you need to be baptized. Well, that's a big one. That's a big one. But let me tell you how this has worked out for me. For months, for months I had been feeling like as a pastor, I needed to say something about racial justice. I mean, all my other pastor friends feel like they have to say something. All the big magazines, Christian magazines, say you have to say something. But I see this issue is really complex. And I am the person who has written the definitive history on the African-American experience in Knoxville, Tennessee, immediately after the Civil War. I had that published in a peer-reviewed journal. I wrote that history of the African-American experience. I know something of the history of racial tension and racial history in the United States. I am no alien to it, at least academically. But what would I say in a world that this is a, in a world of a complex issue? Well, I knew before I ever needed to say something, I needed to see what does it look like for me. And so I decided, well, how many African-American friends do I know? I mean, how many people of a minority community do I know? Not a lot. haven't got to know a lot of them. I have a lot of friends in different parts of the country, but here in Roanoke Rapids, I've not really fostered friendships with people that look, sound, and live in different ways than me. And so I decided, well, what's one, what, you know, I needed to find a way to get to know someone that was different than me. I don't need to go out and do a march, I need to go out and have a friend. And so I decided, well, my haircut, my hair needs cut every few weeks. So I went and said, where's a black barber shop? And I found one on 10th Street. And so me and Adrian, we're getting to know each other. He cuts my hair and we talk. And I walked in. First day I walked in, would you cut a white man's hair like mine? He said, man, I cut people like that all the time. You come on in here. And we've just struck up a friendship. He looks different than me. He lives different than me. But we're going to get to know each other. And I believed, and I believe, that's what God was calling me to do. God did not call me to change and be able to fix racial tension in our country. He didn't call me to that. But He did call me. And I'm saying this was my call. I'm not saying it's your call. He called me to get to know people that are different than me. That's what He called me to do. And so I delayed for a long time. And I finally just stepped into that, store, that, that shop and said, would you do it? And we struck up a relationship. But it took me months to make that move. Months. I've had a feeling that I needed to do something different than Sunday morning. This is one way. I am not a robot. I don't, I, don't, I don't just need to be the person giving you the information. I also need to read the Bible with you. I need you to help me. I understand I went to school. And I understand that my character and my life is very much tied to what I do on a Sunday morning. But I also need your help because we're part of a family. And so, finally, when this couple said, we're looking for something deeper. And I said, ah, this is the moment. Finally, i gotta make a, I got to just make the move. That's why we started the Tuesday night group that starts the Tuesday after Easter. Where we read the Bible together. That adds another thing to my life. But it's a thing I need and I believe God was calling me to do where I could be in relationship reading the Bible and not just a one-way communication. But it took me months. I'm saying this was in my, in my insides before the pandemic hit. It took me a year to do something with it. I also remember that when Tess, nearly eight years ago, said she was going to divorce me because of years of selfishness. 
But finally, I did the thing I knew God was calling me to do. I gave up my Ph.D. And so I'm not, I'm not and I never will be, a doctor. I'll just be that guy who has everything but his dissertation. But it saved my family. But I gave up what I thought was everything. But in the meantime, I gained everything. But God was calling me to die so I could live. Listen, these are just a few examples. One from long ago and two from something really recent. I don't know what God's calling you to do. I have a sinking suspicion that there are some in our church family, and I think this is across the nation as I talk to pastor friends, there is a group of people that are getting used to watching church online. And they know they need to get back. They need to get back. Now, I understand there are some that have health concerns or really health risks, and they will stay away for quite a while. But there is another group that are getting very lazy with their church attendance. And you can't substitute being here in body with online. Now, I understand, again, there's nuance here. So this isn't a condemnation of anyone watching online. But we've got to be really careful not to slip into church in our pajamas. That becomes really easy. I have a sense that God is stirring in some people. You've got to get back. Now, you push that down long enough, either God's going to, God's going to move you despite you, or He's going to let you have your way and let you slip away. So this might be a call for you to get back in person. I, I don't know. Maybe there's someone that you need to forgive. And you've been holding on to bitterness for a very long time. And you need to give it up. I don't know. You know I could just keep going for hours on all of the different scenarios God may be calling us to. Let me just give you one more that I feel is relevant. Maybe something's stirring in my spirit that I need to say this. There's a lot of suffering in our community, and I know a lot of family members. Like I have family members, and I know you have family members that are suffering. And for many of us, the first step is to be angry with God. Why, God? I am mad at you, God. And then that becomes, I'm walking away from you, God. Some of you, maybe me at times, we have to let go of the bitterness to God. Nowhere in the Bible is God telling us that He gave a particular person that cancer. You want to know why cancer is so prevalent? Because probably some things we're doing in our society, environmentally potentially, and because there's still evil in our world. It has not all been stamped out. I don't know why bad things are happening, but I know that God is good. And in the end, we will see that goodness for all of its glory. We're just having a hard time right now. So maybe God's calling you to open up and let Him back in. I don't know. I just feel like that may need to be said. All right, can I just want to be clear? With all this said, before we step into the next step, is this. God will not call you to certain things. Here's my list. God will never call us to have an affair, leave our family, or cheat or steal, or anything else that disobeys His Word. I have heard, not dozens and dozens of times, but I have heard enough where a man or woman will describe something that is happening in their life and God is calling them to this new relationship to, so that they can be happy. God will not call you to have an affair so you can be happy. God doesn't care about your happiness that much. God cares about you keeping promises. 
So if you or anyone you know has this idea that God's calling them to have an affair, that's from the devil. That's from the devil. All right? I think enough said. Next step. Here it is. Stop delaying and take a step in the direction Jesus is calling you. I don't know what God's calling you to do. I literally, it doesn't, this isn't, these don't have to be monumental decisions. But God, as He stirs you, take a step in that direction. I'm not saying if God's calling you to take, to run a marathon, you literally run the marathon tomorrow. If God's calling you to run a marathon, you get up, put on your running shoes, and you run down the block, and you go home and rest. And you get up and you do it the next, you do it tomorrow. The next step here is to do something in the direction God's calling you. That's what it is. And so do that. That's all. That's where we're at. So whatever that looks like, if you are bitter with God and He is calling you to open back up, maybe the next step you can take is to say this. God, I don't like you. Help me. That's it. That's, where you, that's your prayer until, until another prayer emerges. That would be a really big step. All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving this vision to Peter, finally getting him to take this message to the non-Jewish world. And so now we ask that you would continue to expand the gospel. Help us to be a people who are open to what you are calling us to do and help us, Holy Spirit, would you help us to take us in? We will need your help. And we will need each other to help us as well. So would you do that under the authority, the power, and the